Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And as you're turning there, I would observe that to the writing of books about leadership and being successful in business, there is no end. Every year, more books are published. There's always some uh, new popular approach or catchphrase or fad, and some of it is helpful, some of it's unhelpful. And yet, other advice that's given in business literature has actually stood the test of time. It's good counsel. And I would submit to you that one of the expressions that's helpful and that has stood the test of time in business and in leadership books is this one, be intentional. Whatever you're doing, be purposeful in how you go about achieving your goals. Being purposeful, being intentional, has a way of clarifying what your goals actually are. And if you keep those goals in view and you work towards them, it'll help you not get sidetracked or dissipate resources on other things that distract from the main goal you're after. In fact, being intentional helps you, if you are intentional in the way you go about achieving your goals, you'll be more likely to reach those goals because you're not getting distracted by other things. And I would submit to you uh, that being intentional is actually, I think, a reflection of the image of God in man. Think about it. Whenever we read God's self-revelation in the Bible and we see Him acting, He doesn't do things randomly. God is intentional. He always acts with a purpose. And a good example of him acting with a purpose would be him acting in choosing to adopt a people for himself from before the foundation of the world. When it came to election, God had a plan, and he had very intentional purposes behind the plan, and he communicates what those purposes were. Uh, to us in Scripture. So, uh, turn, if you haven't already, to Ephesians 1, verse 3, and we'll look at those. Over the past two weeks, we've been in just a short, this is going to be a three-week series, talking about the doctrine of election as unfolded by Paul in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. And we've already seen two features of election. The first is that election is divine. God chose us. He did the choosing ahead of time, and we were passively chosen by Him. The second key feature of election we saw is that it's unconditional. That is to say, God's choice was not conditioned on or based on any good trait He saw in us or that He saw ahead of time we would make the right decision. Uh, no, uh, you can't find the answer for why God chose those whom He chose by looking at the chosen. The answer doesn't lie in them, it lies within Him. And what Paul says in this passage about why God chose whom He chose is that He chose whom He chose, motivated by love at the end of verse 4, and He did it according to the good pleasure of His will, verse 5, and that good pleasure was according to His purpose, verse 9, and the purpose of His own all-wise counsel, verse 11. And again, I would remind you that his counsel means that the way this was set up and the very people he chose was well thought out. It was according to wisdom, verse 11. So, the rock-bottom answer of why God chose those whom he chose is because he loved them, he willed to choose them, it was his free choice to do so, and he takes pleasure in doing it. It was his good pleasure. 
uh, and it was well considered and wise because it was according to his own counsel. And so we've learned that election is unconditional. We've learned that election is divine uh, in origin. And there's one more feature of election to unpack today, uh, and that is that election is intentional. God was intentional and purposeful in the plan of election. And election has a business end to it. There are certain goals God wanted to accomplish. Uh, election achieves certain ends, and those are ends that God has revealed to us. In fact, there's three of them in this passage that I want to show you today. But before we read the passage and dive into what those were, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for His help. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the wonder that your chosen ones were the focus of your planning before you set the stars in place and the solar system in motion would break through to us. Take our breath away as we see you, the creator of all things, setting your favor on us with the purpose that through creation and fall and the drama of redemption and the coming new creation, <clears throat> we would be made holy and blameless. Show us the wonder of this from your word, I pray. Amen. In Ephesians 1, <clears throat> verses 3 and following, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love... He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Over the last couple of weeks, I've done my best to try and answer some of the questions that election raises, and particularly that question of why, why did God choose those whom He chose? And I think that's a very natural question for people to ask, and I anticipated that. That's why I wanted to try and answer those questions. But I, wanted, I do want to fo uh, point out from this passage that I don't think answering that question is Paul's main focus. I think he gave us clues, right, that he did it in love, that it was according to his counsel, verse 11. I think he gives us clues. But that doesn't seem to me to be the main thing Paul's talking about. And even though I want to answer questions that are very natural for people to ask, I don't want us to get so sidetracked on that that we miss the main point of what the apostles say. If the apostles trying to make a main point, I don't want to get all distracted on some other thing. And so coming back to the main point today, it seems to me that the main point Paul is making here is why God chose whom He chose. What was, why did He set it up this way? What was He trying to accomplish? What is His goal? And we learn in verse 4 about His first goal. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world so that, or in order that, we would be holy and blameless before Him. In other words, God elected us to salvation, and therefore, because He elected us to salvation, He elected us to become holy and blameless. Now, if you're at all familiar with the New Testament, you know that this is one of the main themes of the New Testament. God chose people uh, and saved them in order to make them holy. Uh, just a chapter later in Ephesians, when we get to Ephesians 2.10, 
we're going to hear Paul tell us uh, that we are God's workmanship, or His masterpiece, if you will, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Before He created all things, God chose you and set you apart to walk in good works that He prepared for you to do, not in order for you to become saved, but because when you do those good works, you put on display for all to see the difference that His saving work makes in a person's life. Paul explains it this way in Titus 2.14, Jesus Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. So, if you're in Christ, you were chosen in spite of who you are, but God chose you so that you would turn from doing evil to become zealous for doing good works. Again, the specific language of Ephesians 1.4 is that His goal for you is that you would become holy and blameless. Uh, but what do those terms mean? Well, holy, uh, just the basic idea of being holy, is to be set apart. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, it was used to speak of objects uh, or buildings or people that were set apart or set aside for special use. The temple was holy because it was a building set, a, set aside exclusively for the worship of God. It was not a multi-purpose center, right? It was, there was only one purpose that it, was, uh, uh, that it was appropriate to use it for. And the same with the priests. The priests in the Old Testament are called holy because they're set apart for the service of the Lord. God is called holy in Scripture for two reasons, because He's utterly distinct from and unique from the creation He's made, but also He's set apart from evil. It, he's holy in the moral sense that He's set apart from evil. He doesn't do evil. He doesn't tempt other people to do evil. He's not tempted to commit evil Himself. He's set apart. And in the New Testament, all who follow Jesus are called to be holy in the sense of being distinct from and different from and set apart from the sin that we used to indulge in, that we used to walk in before following Jesus. 1 Peter 1.14 says it this way, "'As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former desires which were yours in spiritual ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So, we were set apart to be different than our former way of living because God is set apart from evil, and He wants His children to be set apart from evil as well. The Holy Spirit says through the author of Hebrews, pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, which brings up an important clarification. Salvation is a work of God and God alone. We contribute nothing to our salvation. But after being reconciled to God through Christ, the process of growing in holiness is portrayed in the New Testament as a work of both God and man. Both parties are at work. The Holy Spirit works in us to grow us in holiness and obedience to the truth, but we are also called to make decisions to put away sin and to put on the righteous kind of living God calls us to. We sometimes call this process of growth in holiness sanctification. Now, uh, that, there's a root word in, uh, in the Greek New Testament text for holiness, agios, uh, and holy ones, becoming holy. And the, the process of growing in holiness we translate into English as sanctification, 
And here's the reason why. It sounds so much better in English than holification, right? So our translators made the decision, but whenever you see the word sanctification uh, in English, the Greek word behind it is the word for holiness. We're supposed to grow in holiness. Now, in my own Christian walk, but also in my pastoral experience, I have seen good and godly Christians, including myself, misunderstand the pursuit of sanctification. Again, sanctification is a work of God and man. Now, when you forget or omit or fail to acknowledge both parties in this endeavor, things get wonky really quickly. Let me, let me explain what I mean. If you neglect acknowledging God's work in the process of sanctification, the whole thing becomes very man-centered. And it, it has a good intention, I want to grow in holiness, but it very quickly becomes spiritual game plans for how to grow and rules that are well-intentioned to help me uh, be disciplined about my spiritual walk. It becomes game plans and good habit building and rules that very quickly become laborious. And not only do they, do they become laborious, the whole process can quickly become very discouraging, and here's the reason why. Sanctification is a quest that is so open-ended that you will never feel like you've been able to do all the good that you should have done. And even the good that you did do wasn't done as well as you would like to have done it. And so what'll happen is you'll end up in a spiritual depression. Now, here's the thing. Your failures in sanctification are not meant to drive you to depression. What they're meant to do is drive you back to the simple truth that you will never outgrow needing God's help in this quest of sanctification. That's the whole point. That's where it's trying to drive you back to. It's not trying to drive you into depression. And so you have to remember that you need God's help along the way. So, so we, we don't want to forget the role that the Holy Spirit plays in helping us grow in, in sanctification. And here's what that means practically for us. First of all, if you fail, remember uh, the necessity of God's grace in helping you grow in sanctification. Your failures aren't meant to depress you. They're meant to drive you back to the simple truth that as we pursue holiness, we do so under a gospel of grace. That's what we need to remember. God accepts us, and He accepts our imperfect efforts through the work of His Son. The second uh, practical implication for us is this. Uh, if you fail, remember the necessity of God's continuing grace in sanctification, or you'll say stupid things to yourself like I've said. I've been uh, crushed by some sin I committed and said to myself, I've been in Christ for over 30 years now. I should be past that by now. Now, let's take a time out. Let's stop and think about that statement. Is there a sense in which after being in Christ for 30 years, you should grow past some things? Okay, maybe in 1 John. John talks about people who are fathers in the faith. By virtue of holding the pastoral office, I've made myself a father in the faith, at least in title. Uh, I'm an elder, 1 Timothy, 3, uh, 1, uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1 talk about that, what elders are supposed to do. And it's a fair expectation people should have that I live a life above reproach and that I am past 
certain sins. I shouldn't be given over to drunkenness, or I'm not qualified to be a pastor, for example. But the problem, that's okay to say. The problem with me saying, I've been in Christ 30 years, I should be over this by now, is that lurking behind my statement is this desire in my heart and assumption that someday in this life, I'll outgrow needing God's grace. I will be so virtuous and so spiritual, I will have graduated from the school of grace. That's what's lurking behind that statement. That is pure foolishness. That is ridiculous because in this life, we will never outgrow needing God's grace. There is no, uh, there is no uh, status or level of spirituality uh, where I will reach a point of sinless perfection in this life. That will happen when I go to be with the Lord because of His work in me, but that won't happen in this life. I will never outgrow needing His grace. And thinking that I could betrays foolishness and pride, and also that I'm forgetting the idea that sanctification is not just a work I try to grow in, it's a work of God and man. I need the Holy Spirit's help the entire way. Sanctification is all about God's grace from start to finish, and will never outgrow needing His grace. On the other hand, if you approach sanctification and all you focus it on is God's grace and you leave out or omit or forget to remember the part that the New Testament calls each of us to do, to work in, the result will be a kind of unintentional spiritual laziness. You'll act, actually neglect the work God calls you to do. You will actually neglect some of the explicit commands in the New Testament for you to do certain things because you're, you're just sort of uh, letting go and letting God and just focusing on His role in it. And so, we need to say this, you do need to put some sweat effort into cultivating good habits. You do have to make decisions to put some things away that maybe uh, aren't sinful in and of themselves and, and every Christian has the freedom to enjoy them but you might need to put those away because they tempt you because of your idiosyncrasies into sin. Um, Excuse me. Um, You may have to put off some selfishness and sacrifice some of the downtime you could have had in order to serve others. You have to humble yourself from your pride to admit when you've done wrong, or also to admit you need some help and counsel because you're not wise enough to figure it out on your own. You might need to also humble yourself and turn from your pride to admit you're trapped in something and you need some help and accountability. So all those things require effort. Maybe we could say it this way, looking at the, the side of our responsibility. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to overcome sin. He's our guide. He's our encourager. He's our helper. He helps illuminate what Scripture means for us, but the Holy Spirit won't obey the commands for you. You also have a role to play in sanctification, and we have to keep both parties in view. It's a work of God and man. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, but I'm also called to some responsibility as well, and we need to remember that as we pursue holiness. The other word Paul uses to describe our sanctification here in verse 4 is being blameless. Now, blameless was a word used most often in the Old Testament for a sacrificial animal that had no obvious 
uh, physical blemishes and was an appropriate animal to sacrifice in the temple. But the word is also used to speak of an absence of moral or ethical blemishes, and that's God's will for the church, that the church would grow up so that she has no moral or ethical blemishes, and God can give her as a bride to His Son. We'll see more about that in Ephesians 5. Now, in other places of even this letter in the New Testament, we are exhorted to grow in holiness and blamelessness. But I want to point out that's not the main thing Paul's doing here. Actually, what he's doing in Ephesians 1-4 is he has a specific moment in history in mind. He is talking about a day in the future when we will stand before God, and God is working out a plan right now so that a day will come when we can stand in His visible holy presence and we'll stand before Him actually holy and blameless. Jude speaks about that day this way. He says in an outburst of praise, "'Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy,' and then he pronounces a blessing. And the idea here is this. This is what Paul's getting at too. If you're in Christ, God's intention in choosing you from the foundation of the world is that a day would come when you would stand in uh, His visible uh, presence, His visible holy presence, and you wouldn't be consumed by His holiness because of your evil. You also wouldn't fall down like a dead man cowering in fear like the Apostle John does in Revelation chapter 1. No, 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 you'll be in His holy presence standing upright, head held high with great joy, because you actually have been made holy and blameless. That's the day Paul is looking forward to here. And it's amazing to think that before the universe was created, God was planning our holiness and our blamelessness before Him. So, divine election has intentions behind it, and the first is, it's intentional for the purpose of those whom God has chosen becoming holy. God's intention behind election is also to legally adopt those that He's chosen into His family. Look at verse 5. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Now, I know we've, we've kind of already covered this in the previous two weeks, but uh, the word predestined here, it literally means to decide before. It's a compound word. You can see destiny in destined, uh, pre meaning before, uh, to decide one's destiny beforehand. Now, I don't know about you, but I will confess this. Instinctively, I don't like the word predestined. And the reason I don't like it is because I don't like the idea that someone else chose for me. I'm going to do my own choosing, thank you. Now, uh, th- this, is, this is hard for human nature to swallow, but hear me out. Hear me out on this. Remember two things about this destiny being chosen for you. Number one, uh, the person doing the choosing is the most loving, wise, benevolent, good, intelligent being in the universe, and the destiny being chosen is a good destiny. 
He's not choosing you for something bad. He's choosing you for all that heaven has to offer. So we need to say, look, yes, somebody made a choice for me, but that person is a better, more loving person than I am who who made an all-wise choice, and he chose me for something good. This isn't God choosing anybody for something evil, for something bad. This is God choosing us. And, And what he's choosing us to is uh, being adopted as his own sons and daughters. Now, the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son. He is God's only Son by nature, sharing in the divine nature, right? But God the Father wanted other sons and daughters, so He chose to legally adopt us. And we truly become His sons and daughters, not by nature. It's not that we become, it's not that we somehow share in divinity. That's not what's going on. But we do become true sons and daughters by legal adoption. Um, uh, Maybe we could say it this way. When God looks at the whole thing, there is a true, real sense in which He thought the best way to explain this was that He's adopting us for His own. And it's an amazing thought to think that the Creator of all things loves us so much that He would adopt us as His children. Uh, When God redeemed you, He did something between you and Him that He thought was best portrayed as adoption. And so, if you're in Christ, God truly thinks of you as His son or daughter. That's really good news for us because, according to Jesus, we actually were not orphans. We had a father, and our father was the devil, and we imitated him before being adopted into God's family. We uh, rebelled against God. We took pleasure in doing it. We wiped our lips and said it was worth it, and I'm going to do it again the next chance I get. And we also lied to get, to get through life. We lied about our accomplishments. We lied to get out of trouble. We imitated our father, the devil. So this adoption, this adoption is really good news for us because we got adopted out of a terrible family with a terrible father to become children of God the Father. David describes our relationship with our new adoptive father this way. You can find this language all over the Bible. Psalm 103, verse 8, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Jesus says, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. And he also knows that you need all these things. Uh, In another portion of Scripture, Jesus is talking to a group of adults, and he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? The Apostle John says it this way, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. If you're in Christ, God genuinely loves you, and He has adopted you as a daughter or a son. Now, this legal adoption never would have been possible if it wasn't for Christ. Look again at verse 5. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. So, this adoption that we enjoy, it's only happening through Jesus Christ and the work He did on the cross. And we're not left to wonder what God's motive was in adopting us. 
Uh, we know that He did this in love. That's, you know, in love He predestined us. But we also read at the end of verse 5, this happened according to the kind intention of His will. Now, I'm preaching out of the New American Standard today. I have a marginal note next to verse 5 that says you could also translate kind intention as good pleasure. And I kind of like that because good pleasure simply means that by adopting you, uh, God adopted you because this seemed good to Him. It, it seemed good. He wanted to do it. It pleased Him. He didn't do it because uh, uh, He was obligated to do it. He didn't do it because one of the angels guilt-tripped Him into doing it. Right? That's not what happened. He took great delight in adopting you. Uh, and He didn't choose to adopt you because He had to, but because He wanted to. So, God chose us before the creation of all things so that we would grow in holiness and blamelessness and also to adopt us as His own. And then there's a third purpose for election in verse 6. He predestined us to this adoption as sons and daughters, verse 6 now, to the praise of the glory of His grace. This is a purpose that we dare not miss. This would be pastoral negligence. This would be spiritual negligence on my part if I failed to preach this point, and here's the reason why. Paul repeats this motive three times in the passage. He does it here in verse 6, but he also does it later in verse 12 and in verse 14. God has adopted people for Himself because it brings Him glory. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that uh, it brings God glory or that God is glorious. Well, the New Testament idea of glory is built on the Old Testament concept. The Old Testament Hebrew word for glory means heavy or weighty. And in their mind, they were thinking metaphorically now, they think of things like chaff, things that are light and just blow away as not having very much value, right? Being worthless. Whereas they were thinking of things that were heavy as having value. So to, to, and when they moved from the physical realm into the realm of relationships, humanity, people, to speak of a person's character having glory meant that that person was great or noble or excellent or they were a weighty person and therefore not to be taken lightly. They weren't the kind of person you ignore, right? That, that kind of a thing. Uh, maybe this isn't a great translation, but I think you could use the English word impressive. That, that kind of starts to get us moving down the right path. And the word glory is used in three different ways to speak of God in the Bible. The first way is to refer to His intrinsic majesty and honor. This is what Jesus is talking about in His high priestly prayer in John 17. He, uh, in John 17, verse 5, He says, "'Now, Father, glorify me with Yourself.'" with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So, before the creation of all things, God the Father and God the Son were glorious, even if there was no created beings to witness their glory, they, they were intrinsically glorious, even if no one was around to notice it or say anything about it. Uh, and so, one way of talking about God's glory is just talking about Him being intrinsically glorious, whether people recognize it or not. The second use of God's glory refers to manifestations of His glory that created beings see. Isaiah 6, 3 would be a good example. There's angels. Uh, Isaiah has this uh, vision. Uh, he's caught up into heaven. He has this vision. And there's these angels crying out to one another. 
And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So what the angels are saying there is that the whole created world and its beauty and its wonder and its, and its intricate design and interconnectivity, that all puts on display God's glory. Maybe we, could say it, maybe we could say it this way. Imagine for a moment that there was a being who not only created all the, everything on earth and, and all the wildlife and how it all fits together, every biome, every equal ecosystem, everything down to, down to the molecular level and the way DNA works up to uh, the mountains and the valleys and the oceans. Imagine there was a being who made all of that himself, but he didn't even use his hands to do it. He just spoke it into existence. That kind of person would be pretty important right? They would be pretty impressive. You wouldn't want to ignore them. Uh, And when you looked at what they made, you would be like, wow, whoever made that is a pretty big deal. That's what the angels are getting at. So, So there's a kind of glory in God that is created beings like angels and human beings recognizing how amazing He is when we see what He's made and and what He's done. The third way of referring to glory here, the third usage of the word glory, refers to intelligent beings like angels and humans ascribing glory to God when we witness His glory. And what we mean by that is we're giving praise and glory. Uh, Let's say that I give glory to God by, by giving Him credit for some good thing He worked in my life, or I give glory to God by singing a worship song to Him, right? It's not that I'm giving Him glory, like I'm adding to the glory. He, he already is perfectly glorious. It's not like He needed my praise, but I am returning as a creature, trying to return and reflect back like a mirror how glorious He is in the hearing of other people. And that's another use of the word glorifying God, that that's what uh, beings do. And it's not that when we do it, we're adding to God's glory, but we are returning praise and thanks to Him. Now, the reason I went through those uh, three words, or three usages of the word glory, is because here in verse 6, the word glory that's being used has that second meaning. In other words, when God chose an eternity past to adopt sinful people to Himself because He loved them and took pleasure in choosing them and planned to make them holy, when He did that, He put the magnificence and glory of His grace on display. He put the surpassing value of His grace on display for everyone to see. So, His plan of salvation and sanctification and adoption, it shows off the greatness of His character. So, divine election was planned intentionally by God the Father to transform the people He's chosen from being sinners into being made holy, and He planned it this way in order to adopt those whom He chose into His own family, and He did it to display His unrivaled, unparalleled, unequaled grace. There is a gloriousness to His grace that He wanted everybody to see in this plan. Now, Having said all that, we now come to the time when we need to apply the passage. So, let's talk about that. How should we live in light of God's purposes in election? Uh, I just want to, by way of review, say here as a pastor, as we study Scripture, it's not meant to just fill our heads with knowledge. It's meant to change us. And so, we always want to have an eye for, okay, but how should I live in light of this? What are its applications? Or, as the English Puritans used to say, what are the uses of this path? I kind of like that. What are the uses? 
How should I be using this passage in my life? I like the English Puritans. They knew what they were doing. Uh, another way to say it would be implications. That might be helpful. What are the implications of this passage for how I live in this moment in history? Well, there are many. There are many applications. In fact, uh, as I preach, or as I prepare sermons, I like to listen to how other pastors preach. And uh, all the pastors I listened to for this section, they all, every single one of them had different applications that were all valid. They were all valid. They were all true. These guys weren't like, you know, springboarding onto some soapbox they had. They, they, it really was connected to the passage. So there's a lot of applications here. The three that stand out to me that are obvious would just be to exhort you about God's three purposes in sanctification. So what I would do is uh, I'd preach about doing your part in the sanctification process to grow in holiness, and um, then we'd talk about how you have a new father, you've been adopted into God the Father's family, imitate your heavenly father, do what he does, start copying him, and then I'd give a third exhortation about glorify God in your life. And what would be interesting about that exhortation is we all know, I think we all are on board with the idea, yeah, I really should glorify God. But what that actually means, like how do you glorify God, that's like the fuzzy part. And so I would have an extended explanation of that. But you can probably tell by now, I'm not going to do any of those three. Here's the reason why I'm not going to exhort you with those. Uh, I'm going to stick with the spirit this Sunday, not every Sunday, I'm going to stick with the spirit of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul is simply telling us about our standing in Christ, right? He only has one command in all three chapters. And so I want to just uh, help you understand your new standing, your position. I want to help you um, be thankful for and appreciate and rest in the grace God has given you. And one of the reasons why I want to do that is not to be a softy. It's because I anticipate burying you in exhortations when we get to Ephesians 4 through 6, because that's what Ephesians 4 through 6 is. And by the way, I, it's, not, it's not just burying you in commandments because there's actually a lot of practical, helpful advice that actually it's rewarding to actually take the advice that's given in Ephesians 4 through 6. And so uh, we'll get to the exhortations a little bit later. The thought I'd like to end our study of election on is this. Divine election, as explained by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, assures us of God's love for us. Let me illustrate. During the time of the prophet Malachi, one of the crises that happened in Israel is that the people of Israel doubted God's love for them. They were looking around at the difficult circumstances they lived in, and they doubted God's love. And God re reminds them, you don't even have to read all of Malachi 1. Just read the first half of Malachi 1. Um, I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time. But the way God reassures Israel of His love for them in that passage is by reminding them, I chose you. I chose you out of all the nations of the world to be my special covenant nation, and I still do good to the Gentiles. I want to see them redeemed from their sins. I'm trying to use you as an example for them. I'm trying to make you a light to the nations, but I have a special love for you. And you can see his predestining, uh, choosing, electing love for Israel. He gives that as a proof of His love for them, His genuine love for them. And I think that same principle holds true for us as individuals whom He's chosen in the new covenant. Or perhaps this is another way to, to get at how election assures us of God's love. 
Um, Let me pose and answer a question. Maybe that'll illustrate it. How does adult life and acceptance with God work? How does it work functionally? Well, the big idea of how it works when Paul wrote this letter to Christians living in Ephesus in the Greco-Roman world was this. You get what you pay for. You have to work hard. You have to make sacrifices to earn your status. And in Paul's day, the Greeks and the Romans made literal sacrifices to the gods, and the idea was that if they sacrificed to the gods, the gods would then reward them. So you sacrifice to uh, whatever the god of the, the province you live in is, and then uh, maybe it rains, right? Or they're supposed to, if you, and we saw this last month, if you sacrifice to Artemis, she's supposed to help you with your business plans. And so that was the way it worked. Now, in our own world, in the modern world, times have changed, but that same idea for doing life is still around. You get what you pay for. You get where you are by your own merit, by your own hard work. You make personal sacrifices. You get the training and education you need. You get into that entry-level job, and you work long hours so you can get a promotion, which obligates you to more long hours, but you get the reward. Now, this whole system works well for a couple of things. Number one, it works well in keeping us out of trouble, right? God already told us, Genesis 3, that because of sin's entry into the world, we're going to have to work by the sweat of our brow. So, it, this is good for us in the sense that it keeps us out of trouble. Um, it's good for us in that uh, having to work hard works against uh, the, the human laziness that comes naturally to us. And this whole system of you get what you pay for works swimmingly well if you have the privilege of being born into a good home with two parents who love you and are going to discipline you and make sure you get educated. It works really well if you're able-bodied and able-minded and motivated, but it is an incredibly brutal system if you aren't able-bodied or able-minded. If you're disabled or if you're infirm through no fault of your own, that is a brutal system to live in. And the trouble that happens spiritually results when we project that way of doing life onto our relationship with God. Because how does God function with His children? Does He say to us, you get what you pay for? Does God say to us, you have to earn your status with me, and if you perform really well, then I'll be your God. But if you don't perform well, I'll abandon you. You know what? You know what? I'm going to be gracious. I'll give you a second chance. But if you let me down or betray me, I'll crush you. Is that what God says to his children? No, 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 no. That isn't how it works at all. Uh, God chooses to adopt certain people into his family who've rebelled against him, people who never would have taken him up on his second chance offer in the gospel. He adopts them into their family, and then he makes a covenant with his own sons and daughters where, catch this, all the pressure to perform is on his side of the equation. All the sacrifice that has to be made is on his side. We don't, we, don't ha- we don't bring anything to the sacrifice that pays for our sins and reconciles us to God. We contribute nothing to our reconciliation. There's nothing we add to the sacrifice he made, which means this. <clears throat> we don't earn our status with God. Our spiritual status comes from God the Father 
choosing to adopt us, not because of anything good in us. It's actually in spite of us that, and our sin that He chose us. Um, he chose us because He set His love on us, and it's His good pleasure. <clears throat> and what that does for us is it's both liberating and it's reassuring. It's reassuring because you can be secure in God's love because you were never the cause of it in the first place. He's the one that chose you. The reason for your adoption isn't to be found in you and I being more impressive than the other children. The only cause was God Himself. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters according to the good pleasure of His will. We've only come to love Him because He first loved and chose us. And this doctrine of election, it assures us of His love for us because He chose us from eternity past. Well, let's pray.